we would like to be feeling that we're providing excellent care, that we're a community who care for each other, a community of healthcare workers who care for each other as well. And, and you know, that's not possible when many of our colleagues just can't get the care they need, can't live happy, healthy lives because they don't have adequate income to do so. The systematic devaluation of healthcare work creates an environment where, you know, the fastest growing sector of our economy is employing millions of women in work that is low paid, emotionally and physically taxing. And this is dangerous for our economy. It's dangerous for healthcare workers. And it's dangerous for us as patients. The issue of a minimum wage is of paramount importance because these many of the people, particularly home health aides and others, live in poverty. They work every day. They work eight hours a day, and many of them, because they make so little, and I'm aware of this because I've been examining these patterns, they may work two shifts, and they still live in poverty. They still do not have health care. They don't have Medicaid. The overwhelming evidence is that is that if you increase minimum wages, that the wage structure within industries um, shrinks so that uh, wages, the wage structure becomes, uh, uh, there's less inequality in the wage structure. Cuida tu salud, mi hermano. Cuídala, cuídala tu salud. Cuida tu salud, mi amigo. Hello and welcome. This is the February 2019 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Who cares about the health of healthcare workers, and in particular the health of female healthcare workers? These workers are ubiquitous in our lives because they work in medical or home care facilities. They clean the facilities, they support the patient, they provide care. How many among us realize that so many of them receive insufficient wages to live a materially decent life? Healthcare workers often have to live in poverty. AJPH publishes in its February issue a paper by Himmelstein and Venkataramani that reviews the prevalence of low income and of poverty among female healthcare workers in the United States. The paper estimates the ability of a minimum wage of $15 per hour to improve the condition of the currently 1.7 million female healthcare workers and their children who live in poverty. My interviewees are Katie Himmelstein, the first author of the study who was then a medical student in Pennsylvania. Mandy Ray Hartz, from the Healthcare Workers' Council of the United Steelworkers. This union also comprises healthcare workers. Henry Treadwell, who is with Community Voices in Atlanta. And Paul Lee, who is a labor and health economist in Davis, California. With them, we will discuss who are the healthcare workers, how prevalent are low wages and poverty among them. Is the culprit the healthcare industry or more generally gender and racial inequity? Finally, 
If the minimum wage was raised to $15 per hour, what would be the impact for healthcare workers and also for all U.S. workers in general? And in the end, I will also identify the musicians of the all-star band that composed and played for AJPH the song that you heard in the intro and will hear throughout this pod. I am Alfredo Morabia, Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are February 8, 2019. I'm reaching out to Catherine Himmelstein. She was a medical student at the Paramount School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania then, and she's now a medical resident at the Massachusetts General Hospital. I wanted to know how obvious it is for a young medical student like her to witness the poverty of healthcare workers and to discuss several aspects of her study. I would say almost all of us who work in healthcare have colleagues uh, who work in food services, who work as janitors, nurses, aid, medical assistants, um, who we interact with every day in the hospital and in the clinic, uh, who uh, are having a very hard time providing for their families and accessing medical care for themselves and their families. You know, I, I had a colleague uh, here in Boston um, who was working as a medical assistant and was telling me about housing insecurity. Um, and that's just one of, of many similar experiences I've had. And so I think all of us in the healthcare system know that many of our colleagues are struggling with poverty, are struggling with access to basic services they need to keep themselves and their families healthy. So, you know, there's been uh, a very active campaign, uh, Fight for 15 campaign, which was very active in Philadelphia, New Jersey, sort of the surrounding areas. Uh, and there's also been a lot of talk in the medical community about, uh, you know, if there's not a legislative increase in the minimum wage, having healthcare institutions sort of voluntarily raise their minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, most recently, UNC Healthcare and the Cleveland Clinic have committed to raising their minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, Aetna, in fact, raised their, their minimum wage for U.S. Uh, employees to $16 an hour several years ago. So I think there already has sort of been this conversation both within the, the medical community and then also among folks who do organizing for worker rights about uh, the importance of a $15 an hour minimum wage um, for healthcare workers and then for workers more broadly. So do you think... Uh the issue of uh, the minimal wage is more important than the equality of wages across gender, across races? You know, it's hard to say what is more important. I think, um, I think, I think equality and flattening the wage scale is an incredibly important issue. You know, we have folks in healthcare who earn tremendous amounts of money. And then what this study shows is that there are millions of people who are not earning enough um, to, to support themselves. Um, and that's a real issue. And so I do think sort of flattening that wage hierarchy and ensuring that, that the resources we're spending on salary are, are distributed in an equitable manner is really important. Uh, I think that the $15 minimum wage is a topic that has received a lot of attention in the public discourse. Uh, and while it's sort of ostensibly a policy that's, that's neutral, in terms of, of the identity of the workers it addresses, of course it's not, because we live in a country where the majority of folks, or not the majority, but disproportionately the folks who earn less than $15 an hour are going to be women and people of color. And so while it's a, 
ostensibly a neutral policy. It is, in fact, a policy that would promote equity uh, and justice. Yeah, because precisely, you know, one thing people can say about your study is that, uh, well, you found that uh, women get low salaries, that uh, black women and Latina women, you know, they have lower salary than other women. But isn't this something that is quite common in many industries? Yes, that's, that is absolutely the case. Um, and, and, you know, that's from a variety of factors, I think. I think there's unequal access uh, to education, and, and that plays a tremendous role. There's also discrimination in the hiring market, and that plays a significant role. And I, I think what you're saying is absolutely true, that this is the case in healthcare, and this is the case in many other industries. Um, and I guess I would just say, as, uh, as a physician, as someone in the healthcare industry, you know, our entire field is supposed to be oriented around promoting health. Uh, and this inequality is a, is a huge problem in generating, in generating ill health. And so it is the responsibility of folks in all fields, but certainly in our field to ensure that we are doing whatever we can, whether that is sort of on the patient care end or whether that's on the hiring and employment practices of our healthcare institutions to promote justice and equity um, and to ensure that that all folks who are working in our in our industry uh, have a fair living wage and and have access to health care. Uh, that's a very good point. And uh, but let's look at numbers. Uh, what's the prevalence? You know, the what's the fraction of uh, female healthcare worker who have a a wage below fifteen dollars per hour? Yeah, so this statistic was very striking to me when, when we found this in the data that nearly 35% of all women working in healthcare are currently earning less than $15 an hour. And then when we look specifically at Black and Latina women, nearly 50%, uh, just under 50% of Black and Latina women working in healthcare are learning, earning less than $15 an hour. 5% of all women healthcare workers uh, are living below the federal poverty line and 8.8% of Latino women and 10.6% of black women working in healthcare are going home to households that are living under the federal poverty line. Um, so that overall is 1.7 million women healthcare workers and their children. And, and those folks comprise 5% of all people living in poverty in the United States. These are folks who are providing care to, to us and our loved ones who are ill. Um, and, and it's really disheartening to find that many of these folks wouldn't be able to access the same care for themselves. So we found that 7.1% of all women in healthcare and over 10% of Black and Latino women themselves do not have health insurance. And so if uh, this minimal wage of $15 per hour were implemented, you know, throughout the, uh, the healthcare sector, how would those statistics change? Like, like, uh, how would the prevalence of poverty and how would the proportion of women with insurance, if we can assess it, you know, change? If we assume, uh, that there would be no disemployment effect, no loss of hours, our models show that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would lift 900,000 women healthcare workers and their children out of poverty. And the cost of that would be about $45.8 billion, which sounds like quite a bit of money until you compare it to total U.S. healthcare expenditures. 
Uh, and when we do that, we see that it would cost about 1.3% of, of U.S. healthcare expenditures to increase the wages of these low-wage workers. Um, if we make the more conservative assumption that some folks would lose hours as a result of raising the wages, we still see that about 378,000 women and their children would be lifted out of poverty, and the cost there would be somewhat more modest, $23 billion or 0.7% of U.S. healthcare expenditures. Um, so, you know, I think uh, sort of under either set of assumptions, we see that there would be a very significant impact. Now, your second question about access to healthcare is a very good one. Uh, you know, there, some people raise the concern that when you raise the minimum wage, people actually lose access to benefits, either because they lose eligibility for Medicaid or because their employers cut back on benefits. That is not, uh, has not really been borne out in the empiric evidence. And in fact, some evidence shows that when states have raised the minimum wage, low wage workers actually have better access to healthcare, most likely because they're more able to afford, uh, to afford co-pays and co-insurance and that sort of thing, and therefore have more access to care. Um, so I, I, but I do think these questions are somewhat separate. We may need some policies to focus on wages and poverty and then other, other set of policies to improve access to health insurance. And in your computation, shouldn't you factor in also the fact that if people are not poor anymore, they don't receive poverty benefits anymore, there is a saving that is done on the part of the state, right? Absolutely, yes. So I, I think that's a very good point about sort of the total costs we calculate don't take into account any savings that may accrue sort of to the to the government, to taxpayers, um, because folks no longer need uh, public benefits in order to support themselves and their families. Para seguir viviendo, cuida tu salud. Para seguir gozando, cuida tu salud. Let's now turn towards Mandy Hartz. She's the coordinator of the Healthcare Workers Council of the United Steel Worker, USW. The full name of the union mentions service workers, and these are what healthcare workers are. Why is the issue of a minimum wage of crucial importance for the union? You should be able to support yourself, support your family, pay for childcare, put food on the table, uh, afford good, high-quality health insurance, and also be able to retire with dignity. So I think that our priority as labor unions are to make sure that workers can live. I see. And are there uh, situation examples that you can cite in which this has been accomplished? Sure. I think uh, there are lots of examples, but if we look on a state-by-state basis, say, um, states that have a higher union density are the states where wages for healthcare workers not only are equalized between the sexes and between races, but are also higher. Um, states with higher union which, density. Which are those also, states? Which are those states? Uh, so, for example, New York, Pennsylvania, California, these are uh, states whose union density 
is higher than the national average. So, so would you say that a healthcare worker in California is mm-hmm. uh, better off than in uh, most other states of the country? I would say that, and I think that that's for a variety of factors. Uh, one factor from my perspective, certainly, is that California's union density is much higher than the national average. It's about 16%. Um, and the unions in California, particularly healthcare unions, uh, play a role in raising those wages and providing better benefits and safer working conditions, um, kind of in a variety of ways. I think that most folks, when they think about what unions do, they think of one thing, and that's collectively bargaining wages for members that they represent. And that is hugely important. We also know that in healthcare, for example, which is a very competitive market, um, when there are union facilities and not non-union facilities in the same area, the non-union facilities raise their wages and benefits and working conditions to meet those of union facilities because they've got to stay competitive. They're trying to get the same workers. So um, unions really, they improve those conditions, not only for their members, but even for people who work and facilities that aren't represented by a union. Henry Treadwell is with Community Voices and with the Department of Community of Health and Preventive Medicine at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. In her editorial, Henry stresses the fact that one cannot disentangle the low wages of the healthcare industry from the high prevalence of women, and in particular, of women of color among healthcare workers. At some point, you say, that uh, working within the healthcare system may be in and of itself a social determinant of health. Can you explain to us what you mean by that? What I mean by that is simply if you are working for the healthcare system, earning less money than you need to support your family, then economics becomes and is a social determinant of health. And I think it would behoove and be a very smart thing for health systems to look at what are people earning and what what percentage of them are on Medicaid and what percent have nothing at all because some may be caught in that gap between making a little too much for Medicaid, but not enough to be able to afford insurance. So, but I think mm-hmm. the thing about the healthcare system that makes this something that we can solve is many of these systems work across state lines. You know, we have huge mega systems in healthcare, and it only takes 
those organizations to adopt a better way of evaluating and being conscious of perhaps implicit bias, perhaps. Do you see any difference across uh, U.S. states in terms of gender and racial wage inequities? Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee, and for some reason Wyoming is in here. But the thing that is clear about the first six or seven is that they are in southern states where there is a history of not expanding Medicaid, of not raising the minimum wage, of not taking actions that would support the large numbers of people of color who live here. Historically, we noted that most of the minorities were African-American, but these are also agricultural states. And so there's a large influx of Hispanic and Latinas into the community. Um, so we are, I'm afraid, still looking at issues of who will take care of all of the individuals in that state. And we simply do not appear to have found the standard bearer yet to just say, you know, these are vestiges of a horrible and ugly past. Let's move on into the next century. So, yes, there are pockets where things are happening, but there are also places where very little is changing. Finally, I wanted to bring the perspective of an economist on the general question of the minimum wage. Paul Lee is with the Department of Public Health Sciences, the Center for Healthcare Policy and Research, and the Center for Poverty Research at the University of California, Davis, and UC Davis Medical School. What are the arguments that people usually um, mention to oppose the introduction of a, a general, or if I can say a federal law on uh, uh, minimal wage, like $15 minimum wage? Well, the primary argument is that uh, the increase in minimum wage will cause unemployment because um, economists view the minimum the any wage as a price, and like any price, when you increase the price, people will buy less of it. So in this case, the buyers are the employers, and the price is the wage. Uh, and that's the straightforward um, uh, economic theory there. But um, the evidence suggests that uh, although that, that might be true, uh, if you were to increase the wage by 50%, if you increase the wage by 5, 10, 15 percent, maybe even 20 percent, that the effects of uh, unemployment are minimal. And the reason is that employers adjust um, uh, in other ways, and also the workers adjust in other ways. For example, there's evidence that uh, increasing wages leads to lower absenteeism, 
Uh, it leads to increasing productivity. Uh, it increases uh, morale. And uh, these things, of course, contribute to the production at the company and perhaps even the profits at the company. One issue is that uh, a lot of people who get uh, lower than minimum wage are women or are black or Latinos and Latinas. Uh, what? What would be uh, the greatest priority and the most effective approach, according to you, uh, the minimal wage or equal wages between men and women and across races? Oh, well, I would certainly support um, an increase in the minimum wage for some of the reasons that you just mentioned, because there is a disproportionate share of African-Americans. There is a disproportionate share of women, a disproportionate share of Hispanics uh, among people that are uh, in minimum wage jobs. So if you increase the minimum wage, you're automatically going to have um, a beneficial effect among uh, disadvantaged groups or, or groups that have traditionally been discriminated against. Um, and this, this comes about as, re, as a result of you don't have to uh, I- identify those groups per se, because uh, when you do identify those groups, then there can be, unfortunately, backlash among whites that claim, well, you know, you have uh, affirmative action guidelines, and this can lead to um, animosity among different groups. But if you have treat it strictly as an economic um, problem, and increasing minimum wage, you will directly uh, benefit um, African Americans, Hispanics, and women without um, getting involved with any issues or or controversy or debate uh, concerning affirmative action. California, you may or may not be aware, has um, has on the books has uh, a minimum wage that it will go to fifteen dollars per hour in twenty twenty three, and so it's gradually being phased in. So that, uh, and that is a minimum wage for the entire state. So healthcare workers and, and all others will be brought up to that minimum wage um, within a matter of a few years. So uh, healthcare workers in California, I would, you could argue this from this narrow perspective, are, are going to be better off than healthcare workers um, in other states. How did they get um, there? How how did they get there? Why is it that uh, they're going to have it and, and not yeah. other states? Uh, well, California pressed for this uh, uh, last year, or no, a couple of years ago, but they were uh, reasonable about it in the sense that they didn't say that the, the legislature didn't say we're going to have $15 per hour next year. It was uh, a gradual phase in over the years and, and being bumped up roughly uh, $1 per year for for six years. It was a political process that was um, argued and debated and finally voted on and signed by the governor uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, of course, the state of, state of Washington has done something similar. And in fact, uh, there are close to 30 states now that have minimum wages that are above the federal $7.25 an hour. Mm-hmm. And, and these, many of these states, by the way, are um, so-called red or Republican states. Cuida tu salud, mi hermano. Cuídala, cuídala tu salud. Cuida tu salud, mi amigo. 
Cuídala, cuídala tu salud. All right. At the end of these interviews, it appears that the healthcare sector occupies a strategic position in the path towards decent wages for all. It is a cross-section of the U.S. workforce in the sense that it expresses all the inequities related to gender and race that are present in most of its industries. But it also is a sector that is rapidly expanding and will keep on growing in the next 10 years, providing unique bargaining opportunities. And progress in the healthcare industry may set the standards for other sectors of the economy. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob, as usual, composed the music. The band that executed the song sang in Spanish, Whatever Happens in Your Life, Take Care of Your Health, comprises on vocals the Afro-Peruvian Jose Piquio Balumbrosio, on conga, the Nigerian A.G., on talking drum, Kofo the Wonderman, on Surinamese keyboard, Etienne Stadwick, and Francis Jacob on guitar. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on Android or iPhone podcast app, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on Stitcher. That's it. Thank you for listening. Para seguir viviendo, cuida tu salud. Para seguir gozando, cuida tu salud. Para seguir viviendo, cuida tu salud. Para ti y tu familia, cuida tu salud. Para seguir soñando, cuida tu salud. Para seguir riendo, cuida tu salud. Para seguir cantando, cuida tu salud. Para seguir bailando, cuida tu salud. Alalae, alalae, alalae. Cuida tu salud